Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, coming to the Cato Institute, to today's forum. My name is Marian Tupi. I am a senior policy analyst at uh, Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And um, it is my pleasure to um, introduce our subject matter and our speakers today. The European Union started as a force for economic liberalization. Uh, Brussels broke down many barriers uh, to the free movement of goods, services, people, and capital, the so-called four freedoms, though it needs to be said uh, that only the product market uh, has been fully liberalized and can be described as truly pan-European. Markets in services and capital still await a full liberalization and integration, while the free movement of people uh, may well be a victim uh, to Europe's inability to cope with millions of immigrants from uh, North uh, Africa and from the Middle East. That said, uh, for many decades, the EU was credited with growing prosperity and stability on the European continent. Recently, however, the EU became synonymous with unwieldy bureaucracy and overregulation. Today, many people see the EU as a, source, as a source of Europe's problems, including slow growth, high unemployment, and high and rising social tensions. The Index of Liberalizations, published by the Italian think tank Instituto Bruno Leoni, uh, identifies barriers to entry in key economic sectors across the EU. Our first speaker will present the latest data and discuss the role of Brussels in uh, that Brussels is playing or fails to play in returning the EU on a path to growth. Massimiliano Trovato is a uh, research fellow at the Institute of Bruno Leoni. He specializes in tech and digital policy but has also written extensively in the areas of antitrust, uh, regulation, taxation, on issues such as telecoms, the media, postal services, insurance, sports, food, drinks, and transportation. He is a former Koch Fellow at the Mercator Center at the George Mason University and has edited two books, one on the rise of mobile telecoms in Italy and the other on the failure of fat taxes. That's not flat, fat taxes. Uh, he frequently comments on um, uh, public uh, policy issues in the media, and his work has been featured in a number of publications, including Corriere della Sera and uh, the Wall Street Journal. Please help me welcome Massiliano Trovato. Thank you, Marian, and thanks for having me uh, to the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, um, what I want to do with uh, what, what I want to do with this presentation is basically uh, to divide it in three parts. The first part, uh, I want to deal a bit with uh, uh, the idea of liberalization and uh, why it matters for us to, to measure liberalization and to discuss. Uh, liberalization and advocate for liberalization. 
In the second part, I, I will just try to give you a sense of the project, uh, the, the, the index we've been working on for uh, uh, nine years now, and um, especially after the changes it underwent in the last few years, uh, I think it's uh, uh, more uh, relevant and more useful than ever, basically. And the third thing I want to do with this presentation is to try and answer the question that is the title of our event today. So I'm trying to, to give a few thoughts on the role that the EU is playing uh, in promoting or rather in halting uh, economic freedom in the, in, in the European sphere. Um, so first of all, what, what is a liberalization? How, how do we define it? Uh, I know with, um, uh, this is a place where uh, you know, free market ideas are nothing new, so I don't need to delve in great depth in, in these issues, but just as a quick reminder, what do we mean by liberalization? Uh, first of all, we need to understand that liberalization is a process. Uh, so we, it's a movement away from a, a closed market, a market where uh, monopoly rights are in place, where reserves for, for particular areas of business are in place, uh, towards a market uh, which is actually free uh, for, for both consumers and producers. So the key idea is uh, to introduce competition where competition is not uh, in place. How do you do that? Through a couple uh, tools, basically. One is deregulation, so you just get rid of uh, all those obstacles that are uh, uh, that are avoiding competition from emerging. The other one is privatization, which is sometimes uh, confused with liberalization, but from an analytical point of view, they're two very separate things. Although there is, of course, a, a close relationship between those two, because when you have uh, public players in a particular market, uh, it gets harder and harder to, to be able to rely on the government as a as a referee, basically, because the government has skin in the game. If it owns one of the players, and uh, quite often the, the, the major player in a specific market. And then, yeah, wh what do we mean by competition now? We, we mean that uh, consumers are free to uh, buy services and goods from whoever they want, basically. And at the same time, we need to make sure that uh, for producers and for sellers, there is freedom to enter a particular market. So there are uh, barriers to entry are uh, non-existent or at least severely limited to, to specific uh, uh, issues, perhaps relating with, with the safety or the, those kind of uh, public interests. Uh, we need the, the freedom to of, of you know uh, organization of freedom of um, promoting the kind of services that you want to promote, how you want to promote them, and the, which means also the freedom to innovate on particular products and services that are currently being offered by the market. 
Um, third, we need the freedom to exit the market, either voluntarily or through um, banks, bankruptcy procedures, which means that uh, when uh, some firm doesn't prove itself uh, uh, viable, when, when some uh, economic endeavor uh, can sustain itself, when it, it needs to be uh, let out of the system, so to speak. Uh, you don't need to uh, keep it in the market uh, by any means, uh, as is often the case with uh, public endeavors. Uh, why does the liberalization matter then? Well, first of all, liberalization has an impact on economic growth, which is uh, a paramount uh, interest for, for the EU right now, when, uh, competition, when growth is stagnant. It has been stagnant for, for several years now, since the Great Recession of 2008, and competition promotes growth not through uh, increased public spending, but quite often to uh, very little spending or no spending at all. In fact, if we define uh, liberalization as the, you know, deregulation plus privatization, we also realize that quite often uh, liberalization are a net benefit for, for public finances because, uh, of course, selling off the companies, the public monopolists or public uh, players, the, the government can uh, count on, on additional revenues. Um, then, of course, one of the questions is whether or not those players were uh, getting any revenues at all before the privatizations. And that's, of course, uh, an empirical matter. But in principle, uh, one of the main things that separates liberalization from other sorts of strategies for, for improving growth uh, is that liberalization is a, a no-cost strategy. Is basically, uh, what I'm trying to say is that the politicians can't pretend they cannot afford it. It's not an excuse. And whatever one might think of uh, more interventionist policies, they, they come at a cost. Whether or not we uh, think that uh, Keynesian policies uh, are effective in spurring growth, they, they, they come at a cost. Um, liberalization do not. Um, Competition then, uh, as I said, enhances investments, employment, uh, spending. It's one of the things that uh, again, put in motion uh, growth. And um, at the same time, it helps us see new ways to do things that we have been doing uh, in a much different way than before. Competition is, uh, in the Austrian tradition, a discovery procedure. Uh, it helps us realize and devise new products, new processes, new services, which uh, in, in a closed market would have not been possible. Uh, the same is true with technological innovation. We see very little innovation in industries where competition is, is absent. Uh, on the other hand, 
to regulated industries is where most of the innovation takes place these days. So turning to, to uh, the project, uh, what we tried to do for, for quite some years was to basically have a one-to-one -one comparison between uh, Italy and a different European country in each particular um, in each particular economic sector. Um, so th that was a project which was basically only relevant to, to the Italian public. We realized we could improve this by trying to enlarge the scope of our investigation and we first moved to considering the, the 15 countries of the whole Europe, so to speak, and now for, for the first time we're uh, taking into account uh, all 28 Euro, uh, EU member states. Uh, the idea is to uh, take uh, data for each of these uh, 28 states in 10 different economic sectors. And uh, in each sector, we try to determine what's the most liberalized country, that country gets a score of 100, and then we scale all the other scores on the basis of that um, leading country, the best practice. After that, what we do is we average all the scores for, for each country in the separate sectors, and we found out the average level of liberalization for each country. Um, we, what, what kind of things are we trying to measure? We are trying to measure uh, legal barriers. So again, monopoly rights, uh, reserved areas of business. Then we have regulatory barriers. Uh, for example, price regulation. We have fiscal barriers. Uh, tax privileges like uh, you know, specific VAT exemptions that are in place only for public players and not for their private counterparts. Uh, we try to keep it very uh, harmonized between each sector. Of course, they all have very different challenges and very different uh, regulatory regimes, but what we try to do is to treat in the same way uh, the, the same issues. So, for example, uh, state-owned incumbents, uh, government-owned uh, players for us are, uh, of course, a very uh, worrying trend, uh, even nowadays. So uh, we, we give them a very bad score. But uh, there are other things that require more fine-tuning based on the particular sector we're discussing. Uh, the data we, we used was uh, for, for the year 2014. And as I said, uh, we have a relative scoring process. So we don't, we don't uh, uh, score uh, the, each particular sector on an absolute level. Uh, we, we try to keep it in, you know, within uh, the, the sort of comparison you can have with other actual experiences, not with an abstract ideal model of liberalization. Uh, in part because, as I said, liberalization is a, a process and we're trying to measure not economic freedom per se, but the trend between uh, the old state 
uh, where where this kind of uh, uh, this kind of uh, market barriers were and barriers were uh, of course in place and the new state of the market in these several sectors when there is uh, uh, an advance of competition the sectors where we're, we've been looking at uh, air transport uh, gasoline retail market uh, natural gas mail delivery uh, electricity rail transport telecoms uh, tv broadcasting insurance and, and the guy with the helmet should be i think uh, labor the labor market the results uh, so as you can see there's a country which really stands out and it's the united kingdom uh, other than that, we have uh, three countries uh, that are doing sort of fairly well, uh, the Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden. <laughs> and then we have, uh, you know, almost 25 countries which are uh, closed in, you know, less than 20 points, I would say. So there is uh, some level of balance all around. Um, the, 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 all around Europe, and that's especially because there is a common denominator in EU regulation. Uh, so this is also one of the reasons why it would make sense for us for to uh, use to adopt a relative uh, scoring system, because we, with an absolute scoring system, I guess uh, these distances will be even uh, narrower just because you couldn't really focus on the differences between uh, the way uh, each country implemented and uh, tr translated into its own legal system the dictates that came from, from uh, Brussels. Um, how does IBS index of globalization fare with uh, other indexes that I've been trying to measure similar things even though not the, the same things. Um, these are sort of uh, correlation coefficients that were uh, calculated between uh, IBS index of liberalization and several reports that are available from uh, international organizations and uh, for example, we have the OECD product market regulation, we have the uh, doing business uh, distance to frontier, which is done by the World Bank, we have uh, the global competitiveness, index. we have uh, the uh, index of economic freedom, which is of course one of the two major um, reports <coughs> that try to measure economic freedom. Uh, in the world. The other one, I think, uh, Richard after me will be uh, explaining it uh, in a bit uh, more detail. Uh, what we see here, uh, I, I want to make clear, I'm not an economist, but my colleague Carlos Tagnaro, which is the mastermind, so to speak, behind the index, uh, and which ran this uh, calculation, he told me that what we're looking for here is to have positive results, uh, except for, for the parent market regulation, which adopts a different methodology, but which 
lower scores are better. So we're looking for positive results, but not for, for results that are equal to one, because uh, basically it wouldn't make sense for us to replicate exactly the results that other studies have obtained. So we're trying to measure things that are related with what these studies have been trying to measure, but are not the same things. And overall, I think the results are pretty compelling. Uh, we have so uh, 0.74 uh, correlation with the product market regulation study, and then we have uh, 0.46 with the index of economic freedom, 0.55. So you see that the correlation is there and it's uh, significant. Um, I don't want to delve into too much detail on, on the specific sector. We, we can do that in the Q&A, I guess, if anyone is interested. Uh, I just try to put out for you uh, the three most uh, uh, successful countries and three least successful, oops, what happened? What did I do? Okay, um, so three most liberalized countries, three least liberalized countries, and uh, the indicators we used for, for each sector. So if you want to go into more detail about this, we, we can do that in the Q&A. Uh, one thing that might be interesting to see, however, is that uh, there are uh, things that are that repeat themselves. So, for example, the, the uh, regulator's degree of independence is uh, a key factor in many sectors. Uh, the, the regulation the regime for networks is also very important. Uh, as I said before, the government ownership of the incumbent is an area of concern. So we can go back to that after this presentation. Um, so let's try and think where this all comes from. Um, as I said, liberalization must be thought of as a process. What I mean by that is that uh, liberalizations don't happen over one night. Uh, of course, there is a first stage, which is a legal liberalization, but that's always uh, the first step, and it's never, you know, enough to get competition going. Uh, you need other things and you need uh, the time to develop a more uh, cohesive strategy to go about this. Uh, so if you have, for example, a very fine piece of legislation which removes monopoly rights in a particular sector, uh, you can just stop that uh, unless you make sure that uh, other barriers to entry are still in place for, for uh, entrepreneurs trying to enter the particular market. Uh, just to give you a very quick example, uh, in the postal services market uh, in Europe, we have had uh, uh, absolutely no monopoly rights for five years now, uh, with some exceptions in, in the uh, newest EU members, but still. Uh, Nevertheless, we have, uh, in most of, of the national markets, 
the incumbents, so former monopolies, former public monopolies, still enjoying a market share of 9% or higher. Um, again, this is a market which is liberalized from a formal point of view, but at the same time, uh, competition is uh, having a hard time establishing itself. Um, time matters. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that if we go back to the results, we see quite clear that United Kingdom is far better than any other country. And why is that? Well, the United Kingdom didn't have to wait for the EU to, to start you know, promoting liberalizations. Uh, they went about it by themselves since the, the early 80s. So they gained an edge over every other country. But if we look closer, we realize that the uh, older EU members tend to be on the left side of the chart, while the newer EU members, even when they are countries that have otherwise embraced free market ideas and a free market agenda, they tend to be on the right side. So uh, having had the time to develop uh, you know, a liberalization agenda matters a lot. You, you can't just set out to start now and expect immediate results. Um, we need to take into account Europe's monopolistic legacy. So at the beginning of the 90s, when liberalization started being a, a topic for, for EU policymakers, uh, most of the sectors we are discussing here uh, were, were managed through public monopolists. So no competition at all. Um, then the EU started uh, legislating in this field and it had a very powerful impact on uh, most countries just because they were compelled to uh, adopt uh, directives and regulations. Uh, of course, it came to a cost. Uh, it came at a cost. The regulation was then imposed in those sectors just to take into account the fact that uh, as I said, you couldn't expect competition to emerge uh, immediately. So you needed some kind of uh, strategy to, to go from here, from there to here. Um, one example would be unbundling. So in networking industries, it's now a, a common principle when you liberalize a sector to uh, separate uh, the network, the, the physical infrastructure from, from the service operator. Uh, of course, um, this is something which I find in principle very hard to agree with, but if we look at the pragmatic uh, options available to us, I think that's uh, uh, quite urgent and quite cogent, uh, you know, to have uh, uh, someone a regulator, an independent regulator, uh, able to prevent the former monopolist from exploiting its monopoly power, which are still there even if he doesn't have uh, monopoly rights anymore, but he still controls uh, a crucial infrastructure. Um, where are we now? So what happens? Uh, 
after the, the first wave of liberalization, which started at the beginning of the 90s, uh, I think liberalization came at, to a stop in the last few years. Why is that? I think there are three main arguments here. One is that um, simply the, the climate, an intellectual climate for free market ideas in the EU changed a lot. Um, for all the talk we get about um, austerity and a free market consensus, I don't think we're seeing much of that. Uh, another idea is that, another possible reason is that, uh, again, legal liberalization, formal liberalization can only go so far. So uh, we need, of course, this kind of reforms, but we also need national governments to step up and do their part, and that's not always easy to, to achieve. Uh, finally, I think there is a continued interest by national governments to, to uh, keep a hold on uh, former public monopolists, and we've seen a lot of that, for example, um, with the partial privatizations. So privatizations whereby uh, the, the government only sell a share of the company but still gets to control it. And, and that's because uh, these kind of players are seen as uh, cash cows, basically. So again, uh, going back to what I said before, uh, the, the trade-off between uh, early dividends and uh, one-time uh, selling price uh, is something that should be analyzed from um, an empirical point of view. But uh, at the same time, I think the goal here is not only to, or not primarily to uh, improve public finances, but to uh, get growth going. Uh, well, a few takeaway messages. Uh, as I said, uh, the EU can uh, use liberalization to improve growth, and it's not doing it. Um, but liberalization implies a, a cultural shift, so uh, EU policymakers and national policymakers uh, need to understand that uh, they may not be as involved in the decision process in specific sectors um, in exchange for, for a higher growth rate. Of course, uh, I said before, liberalization is free from from a public finance point of view, but it's not free from a political point of view. Uh, there are cap uh, political costs involved, and not always uh, politicians are going to front that co those costs. Uh, finally, liberalization is urgent and necessary more than ever because, uh, again, as I said before, uh, time is of the essence here, and you don't expect, you can't expect liberalization to pay off uh, immediately. So uh, we need to to get it done, but get it done soon if we expect the results to, to, to show up in the future. That's it, hopes. Thank you. Uh, Richard Ron is a uh, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, 
and the chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth. He serves on the editorial board of the Cayman Financial Review and writes a syndicated weekly economics column, which is published in uh, the Washington Times, Newsmax, and other outlets. In the 1980s, Dr. Rahn was the vice president and chief economist of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States, executive vice president and board member of the National Chamber Foundation, and was the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Economic Growth. In 1982, President Reagan appointed Dr. Rahn as a member of the Quadrennial Social Security Advisory Council. During the 1988 presidential campaign, he was an economic advisor to President George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, he has taught at Florida State, George Mason University, George Washington and Rutgers Universities, and the Institute of World Politics, as well as the Polytechnic University of New York. Dr. Rahn has uh, earned his uh, Bachelor of Arts in Economics from the University of South Florida, an MBA from Florida State University, and PhD from Columbia University. He was awarded an honorary Doctor of Laws by Pepperdine University. With that, uh, help me welcome Richard Rahn. Thank you so much, Marianne. So good to be with you. And uh, I'm a great fan of Italy. Um, for those of you who have never visited, you need to go there often. It is a, a marvelous country, um, not well governed, <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll speak more about it in a moment. But actually, the Italians had the longest stretch of really good government and economic liberalization, and it ran from uh, 507 BC to 27 BC under the Roman Republic. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, the question is about the EU. Uh, now, I hope all of you have the economic freedom of the world. How do we get these? How much do they sell them? Or I don't know how. I get mine for free because yeah. I hear a Cato. But online, anyway. online. Online. Yes, it's free online. Anyway, it's a marvelous publication because when you have questions about how countries are doing relative to their past and other countries, it's all here. And uh, someone this question came up. I was looking at the major EU countries to see how they did before they were in the EU, EU during the EU. And what we found is that there was an increase in economic freedom from and most of them uh, from the early 90s up to 2000, some up to 2005. But for the most part, around 2000 is when they peaked out, and I could go through each country of the major ones. And since that time, economic freedom has been declining, and also the rate of economic growth. Um, Thomas Jefferson had a great line, it was, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. And of course, we see that in this country. We see it virtually every place. And the European Union, I think, is characteristic of this. Initially, there was a burst of liberalization, increase in economic freedom, increase in economic growth. And then the bureaucrats slowly got control and made things worse and worse and worse. And it's not only true, of course, in the EU, but it's every place. Um, Europe, 
I look at it as somewhat of a basket case in general because the level of government, level of government bureaucracy, level of taxation and spending is even worse than here. Now we know that it, there is an optimal level for the size of government. Uh, studies that I've done and others indicate it's probably less than 25% of GDP. My uh, colleague, or our colleague Dan Mitchell here, argues it's under 12. Uh, he's probably right, but the empirical evidence doesn't support it. But with the empirical evidence, you can get up to about a quarter of GDP. Then we notice economic growth and the general welfare begins to slack off. And by the time you get very high levels, you can get to negative rates, as uh, the old Soviet Union and various socialist countries have proved. Uh, we now have a socialist running for president here um, who is clearly totally ignorant of economic history or history in general or just common sense. But anyway, um, we're supposed to be a non-political organization, right? We're not supposed to say that, uh, that candidates are losers like, <laughs> like Sanders and Trump. So long as you don't endorse anyone. Okay. <laughs> you can criticize anyone you want. Okay. <clears throat> Well, anyway, it's, it's clear the system is not working the way they had intended it and for all the normal reasons because uh, there's a whole school of economics of all of you probably know, public choice, and basically explains, which we've known forever, that people in government are not there for the general well-being. Occasionally you do get a few saints in government, but for the most part, they're there to increase their own power and economic well-being. And um, people love to control the lives of others. And when you put them in government, they often have that opportunity. You know, things just naturally expand. And then we have more and more paperwork. And I was thinking about the origin, just the notion of the word paperwork. And if you go back to... Um, the, again, the Roman Republic. I was wondering why it lasted so long. And I will argue that paper was expensive. And they hadn't invented the printing press. And without those tools, let alone the internet and all the electronic communications, there's sort of a limit to how many regulations you can promulgate and get out to the people and so forth. They're just, it's very hard to do. And even in, when this country started, Benjamin Franklin, of course, was a printer. And back then, newspapers tended to only be one page. Print was small, but paper was so expensive, and just the cost of printing was so high. And we didn't really have these overwhelming bureaucracies until the price of paper came down. Of course, the printing press had been invented. And it was really the latter part of the 19th century when paper suddenly became extremely inexpensive. And that allowed governments to you know, disseminate increasing numbers of rules and regulations, let alone what the internet has now done for us. And uh, I don't know if anybody's actually really explored this, but you know, as a weekly columnist, I'm always looking around for to topics. And I just thought, thinking when this thing came up, why we've had the growth of bureaucracies. Um, but as I mentioned, I'm a fan of Italy in a number of ways because at one point I was trying to figure out what was the world's longest bureaucracy in continuous operation. 
And I determined it was the City of Rome Water Department because water has been flowing in pipes in Rome of what the start of it, 600 BC or so, 700 BC, very early, even when it was still the kingdom, before the Roman Republic. And you go there and you see the Trivi Fountain and so forth, and you look at the aqueducts. Well, some of these have been in continuous operation for more than a couple thousand years. And even though during the Dark Ages, the population of Rome dropped from, I guess, the peak was two and a half million down to a couple hundred thousand. Now it gets back about two and a half million or so. What's the population of Rome now? Two million? Okay. But it's probably almost where it was at the, under Hadrian. But the water has been on all that time. You can't go through history and find any time when the water was totally turned off in Rome because, you know, the invaders wanted water. And so we've had this long-standing bureaucracy, but it didn't grow outsized. It had a very defined function. They, the bureaucrats probably wanted to get into other lines of work, you know, expanded into sewage and garbage collection and whatever else. Uh, but that really didn't happen. And uh, part of that, I would say, was because of the lack of invention of paper and the Internet. Now, I realize this is probably pretty far afield from what you originally want me to talk about, but the, um, it, I think it's unambiguously clear that these bureaucracies always grow, and then they become stifling. And then we look at now in financial regulation, uh, which I know a bit more about. In fact, uh, Warren Coates is here, who is uh, one of the world's great experts in this, and we often debate whether Warren's part of the solution or part of the problem. But um, the, well, we, we looked at the growth of financial regulation, and um, particularly in the EU. And there was all this effort to have, quote, tax harmonization among the various countries. What this was the code word for is raising the level of taxes, particularly the corporate tax. And it was considered unfair that some countries have very low corporate taxes. Um, now, Ireland is a prime example of a country who figured out the competitive advantage, went down to 12.5%. Bulgaria's got 10%. Does anybody have any lower than that in the EU? What's the lowest corp? Anybody know? Anyway, I, don't th I don't think it's less than 10% any place. But the, the Swiss have done so much better than the EU in general, and yet they don't have the natural resources, they don't have the access to the sea, and you wonder why the Swiss have done better, um, even though they don't have the broader market. But they did negotiate many free trades, uh, free trade agreements, so they have broadened the extent of the market, and they have their certain compar uh, comparative advantage. But looking at Switzerland, surrounded by the EU. Can you argue that the EU uh, actually added real income or economic freedom because they're both higher in Switzerland than they are in the EU or any individual EU country? Getting back to the uh, financial regulation, now the big, of course, push globally is for information sharing. Much of this comes out of the EU and our own Treasury Department. and. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I noticed the most recent thing was here to limit the size of the banknotes. There's been this pressure in Europe. I think your biggest Euro EU banknote was 500 
euros, that's correct? And they want to bring that down now and to 200. And um, I noticed Larry Summers uh, just last week or a few days ago wanted to limit the U.S. banknote, the biggest one, to $50. Um, you can just imagine how cumbersome that is. And this is all about additional government control because they hate the notion of paper currencies because paper currencies allow bad people to do bad things, but they also allow enormous freedom. And um, I think there'll be a, a lot of resistance to all this. But I, I would argue that the EU and these restrictions on now the size of currency, the various types of tax harmonizations, the information sharing, and so forth, all this is anti-competitive. It reduces competition, reduces economic freedom, and ultimately, of course, will reduce economic growth by not allowing this, and not allowing people to sort it all out. Uh, what size of uh, what kinds of financial ins instruments and institutions they really want? Um, <clears throat> but again, the Roman Republic, and I'm a great fan of it, proved that you can have a long period of really quite stable government with a high degree of economic freedom. And uh, that lasted 500 years. And they weren't, it wasn't a democracy. It was run by basically the property owners. Um, as in the US, we originally had only the voting franchise to the property owners. Um, it was restricted to mail. I don't know if I want to get into that, but I will argue for the property owner. And I, I think there are certain advantages to all that as opposed to unbridled democracy, which always ends up in tyranny and economic collapse. With that, sir, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. All right, let's open into Q&A. Um, if you would just wait for the mic to get to you, and then uh, would you tell us uh, your name and uh, who you work for and uh, form your question in the form of a question, if you don't mind, uh, so we can get as many questions in as possible. Uh, gentleman in front. Hello, and I'll address this to and anyone up there who has the, uh, knows the answer to it. Um, I think when, they, when the Tories won in Great Britain um, last May, uh, there was, a, was some thinking that uh, this was the, um, the onset of, of a new libertarian kind of wave, in, uh, at least in, in Great Britain. And the first thing that the British government did was to double the minimum wage. Um, the, for the previous uh, four years, uh, Great Britain had had a, a larger increase in employment than the entire rest of the European Union put together. As, that's my understanding. And I'm just wondering if anybody can, can explain what happened. I mean, why, why is that? I would say I would never have expected something like that. Whatever you like, whoever wants to take it. No, no, I mean, you, you okay. remain seated, yeah. <clears throat> um, I think it's for the same reason the minimum wage is so popular here. People are woefully economically ignorant. And this thing has great popular appeal. Um, it gets into this whole idea of this egalitarian wanting to share you know, the socialist impulse, despite the repeated failure of all this. Um, 
I mean, you wonder why anybody in the world would vote for a socialist or support socialist, um, given the fact that it's never worked any place and usually ends up causing disaster and tyranny and poverty. Other than that, it's a fine system. But the, <clears throat> and the minimum wage, um, I, I, I don't know how many uh, papers I've written against it as mo most virtually every other economist has. Uh, yet, we have all these people now promoting the $15 minimum wage. We see it in Seattle, which is causing a lot of the restaurants to sh shut down and people move to the suburbs. It's like people, will they refuse to want to learn uncomfortable facts. And they somehow think, well, we just go, uh, we just legislate higher wages and that everybody will suddenly be prosperous. And of course, it's all nonsense. It's been proven through history. And so the British government comes in, does this. They probably figure it out. It didn't hit that many people that badly. And maybe it'll give them enough capital to go ahead and do some more radical good things. Well, uh, I'm not sure about the, the specific case of the minimum wage. So I want to give you <clears throat> a more general answer. Because I think you mentioned a, a country which is now crucial to the future of the EU. <clears throat> um, with um, the, well, there's been a discussion going on for for quite some time about the possibility that the, the UK exit uh, the European Union, and there is a, kind of a, you know, a interlocution going on between the UK government and the EU to try and figure out a way for, for the EU to stay uh, in the EU. And I think it's, this is one of the very uh, major points uh, that will tell us um, if the EU has a future as a whole or if the political project of the EU is dead. Uh, and of course this will have impact on the issue of liberalization um, because I see why uh, UK, UK citizens will find appealing the idea of leaving the EU. Um, on the other hand, uh, I find it more difficult f from uh, my perspective as an Italian you know, to uh, underestimate the, the role the EU has played in basically disciplining our politicians. Uh, and I think that's the case for, for other countries as well as Italy. Um, so of course, getting rid of the, uh, of the UK will, I mean, I think it, it will be like the start of the collapse for, for the European Union. And I think a lot of the good stuff, I mean, the EU has done all good stuff. We are clear on this, but a lot of the good stuff, like liberalization, which been we've been discussing up to to this point, uh, <clears throat> I think it would be in danger of being dismantled if the EU was no longer around. So I mean, the the, the we may debate the the net balance of uh, good things and bad things about the EU, but I think overall. Uh, at least in, in, in the field of economic policy, uh, it's been a force for good. So we, we 
need to make sure uh, what we're substituting it for. At the risk of abusing my position as the chair of this panel, let me follow up on that question. Um, but isn't it the case, I mean, I understand why the Italians would be uh, concerned about uh, liberalization being reversed. After all, um, uh, UK is the driver for liberalization in the European Union, and if they exit, uh, liberalization will have fewer advocates. But Italy will still have to function within the global economy. Uh, the pressure for liberalization may not come in the future from the UK, but it will come from India and China and many other countries with whom Italy will have to compete. And I wonder to what extent actually being in the EU cushions the pressure for liberalization in Italy because essentially Italy has a guaranteed access, duty-free, to the entire European Union. And therefore, it can be more leisurely than it would be if it was exposed to the uh, power uh, of the entire global um, global market. Um, does either one of you want to opine on that? Well, um, I was reading the, the Solo 24 Orieri, which is the, the entrepreneur's newspaper in Italy. Okay, So you would expect some kind of uh, um, free market uh, persuasion uh, be being, uh, you know, put forward by this kind of, of paper. And we had two pages to full pages of protectionist arguments against uh, China and against the uh, idea of China entering markets like, you know, the, the iron market, for example. Um, and, of course, th there is a lot of, you know, uh, the, the, the very... Uh, persuasive language being crafted, so you're not pushing for protection, you're pushing for uh, a new equilibrium, this kind of stuff. But, but the, 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 the sense of it is that you want to limit competition. Uh, and I have the sense that uh, many people, even many entrepreneurs who will be interested in having access to new markets outside of Europe, they don't realize that um, economic freedom actually works two ways. Uh, so they they were yesterday in Brussels lobbying for uh, keeping uh, tariffs and quotas in place instead of opening up uh, a little bit the market to Chinese products. So to, to answer your questions, uh, no, I don't think uh, that's the case. I think that if they could they would even get rid of free market at the European level. You know, going back here to the Index of Economic Freedom, I commented on how economic freedom in Europe has been eroding slightly, not enormously, over the last decade or so. But that is also somewhat true of the world. I mean, in the U.S., we've had a huge slide in economic freedom. And it's... An interesting question is, economic freedom works so well, and we had this very high rate of growth of the world economy up to about 2005, 6, 7 in that area. And then you've seen the reversal, and the world hasn't done near as well, and there's been retrenchment from economic freedom, even though economic freedom by any reasonable empirical measure showed that it worked extraordinarily well. And I mean, you've got the rise of Trump protectionism 
and all this other stuff we see in this country and other countries. All right, well, plenty of questions. Uh, Ian, and then we'll move to the center, yeah. Uh, Ian Murray with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, obviously, we're currently facing a debate over here about whether uh, the Senate should ratify the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it seems to me that uh, the TPP is anything but uh, a free trade deal. It's a trade deal and it's a regulatory deal. It's uh, almost European in its uh, regulatory harmonization. I'd like to ask the panel, how they see the negotiations for the transatlantic uh, trans trade and investment partnership going. Do we expect, if TPP is passed, for the uh, TTIP to be even more uh, regulatory, regulatorily constraining, if that's a word, uh, than the TPP? Um, well, first of all, let, let me say that uh, I share your, uh, your concern, but at the same time, uh, I have a very pragmatic attitude towards uh, free market agreements. I know it's not free market uh, as we would like it, but I think uh, it's what we can get given the, the present political climate, and I think we should do our best to get it because once you have uh, free markets in place, even limited free market, it's very hard to reverse it. Uh, otherwise, waiting for for a, for a better opportunity to have a, a real free market deal, well, you you may very well never get that. Um, that said, I, I think there are um, there, there are a few reasons for concern in the TTIP uh, debate. Uh, one is, uh, of course, the issue of um, dispute resolution which is uh, increasingly being seen by the, the, the left as a, a way to basically expropriate governments of their uh, ability to, uh, you know, to, to police the, the environment, to, to uh, keep uh, in line with, with uh, labor safety and these kind of issues. Uh, so I, I think uh, the, to answer your questions, uh, We'll have to wait and see what happens with, with uh, ISDS. That, that, that's, I think, uh, the main uh, point where the, 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 the debate could be either way. Um, otherwise, I know there's a lot of language that, I mean language, we, we don't know the language of the deal, of course, because it's uh, being kept very secret. But from what we can gather from, from, from the news, I think there are several... Um, uh, very, very vague uh, provisions that would just, you know, uh, serve to to pacify uh, the, the opponents to to free market. Uh, but uh, I don't think uh, they would be per se so bad if we have in place a dispute resolution system that uh, is more. Uh, you know, uh, more more favorable to enterprises than to governments. Right. Um, hands up, please. Okay. Um, let's go to the gentleman back to get some geographical diversity here. Thank you very much. Pietro Manchi, I'm an, an economist. Uh, 
I think uh, a, a key point, a key question is the uh, interaction between uh, the uh, EU and the member states. Of course, we don't have a counterfactual which uh, would say uh, what uh, kind of liberalization would uh, the individual country have undertaken without uh, the existence of the, of the EU. But it's my sense that uh, the EU has played uh, a positive role in uh, pushing the member governments uh, in, to enter some uh, uh, kind of uh, liberalization. My question is, uh, shouldn't the uh, EU do more? Because uh, I'm uh, of Italian origin and I share the view of Professor Ram and I give him another uh, piece of information, which is uh, that uh, in the electricity market, uh, in many places in, uh, in Italy, you have uh, two or three competitors and all of them are state-owned. So there is a competition, there is some sort of liberalization, but uh, these are state-owned uh, companies. So why this is one particular case, but I'm sure there are many other, not only in Italy, why the EU is not doing more to push uh, a real reform? Thank you. So um, I tried to give a couple of reasons during the presentation, but uh, I would give a couple more. Um, I think uh, one of the problems with, with uh, separating uh, formal liberalization from actual liberalization is that once you have a formal liberalization, you have the sense that the work is done. So it's not like uh, there are forces opposing further liberalization in, in the, the formerly regulated industries. Uh, it, it's like there's nothing to talk about anymore because liberalization is already in place. Uh, and I think that uh, for, for this very reason it's important to you know, highlight the fact that uh, formal liberalization is not enough. You need to, to have in place a system and that may require regulation even, but a system to allow for competition to emerge. And then, of course, the, the, the final, the ultimate goal will be to, to get rid even of regulation, but, um, which in fact was the plan uh, even in Europe for, for several industries. For example, when we introduced uh, telecom regulators in, in, uh, in all EU countries, the idea will be that in in due time uh, they will they would have to be abolished uh, so that uh, uh, regular competition authorities would be in charge of policy and competition even within uh, specific sectors. Uh, Twenty years passed and we still you know don't see any sign of that happening anytime soon. Uh, so th th that's one of the reasons. And um, one other reason is what Richard referred to earlier, uh, that there is, a, of course, a tendency for bureaucracy to uh, grow and to protect themselves. Uh, and in fact, we see that the, the regulatory burden is actually shifting towards uh, new industries so, 
we have uh, you know, reduced the burden for formerly regulated industries, but we are now trying to regulate uh, industries that were born free. Think about the, 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 the internet uh, economy, the, the, the sharing economy now. Uh, that, of course, under you know the, 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 of the, the premises that you need to uh, have harmonization, you have to, to keep a level playing field for, for companies that's called for more regulation. Uh, so uh, we, we've seen a shift, uh, of course a shift in time within the same industries between uh, more regulation and less regulation, but also a shift between industries and industries so that industries that were unregulated are now starting to be increasingly regulated. And that's, uh, in a way, uh, shifting away the spotlight from uh, uh, traditional economic sectors to new sectors. Well, there's the endless struggle between what level regulations ought to take place at. And um, as technology changes, particularly like in communications, where things could be regulated at more of a local level in times past. Uh, but, you know, we have in the U.S. a big problem of these, a lot of these local regulations, like uh, uh, the, our colleagues at the Institute for Justice fight all the time, of things like flower arranging, uh, being an interior decorator, hair braiding, all this kind of absolute nonsense. Um, it's done at, at the local level. It could never go ahead and, you know, if you tried to do this nationally. Uh, <clears throat> but we, that's, uh, there's one big issue in the U.S. of insurance markets are still divided among the 50 states. And you have most public policy people and uh, uh, candidates saying, yes, we ought to have a, a national market for health insurance. And the idea with more competition would bring down cost. But you look at each of the separate states, they all have their own insurance commissions. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of con campaign contributions that go to uh, uh, local members of the legislature to keep these various uh, insurance, you know, quasi-monopolies or oligopolies in the various states rather than allowing it much broader, that same Pressures, of course, take place in the EU. Um, U.S. was fortunate at the time of our founding to have the Commerce Clause, which makes it difficult to have uh, some of the big regulatory impediments on trade and even the movement of capital and people. Uh, but these have gone on for the beginning of time. And I was struck a couple months ago, I've been doing some films on high growth uh, places around the world, and I'm, as I mentioned, I'm a fan of Switzerland, but we were up in Zermatt, and in Zermatt has a regulation that you cannot have uh, anything but an electrically powered car or a little truck. It just so happens there's a little shop in Zermatt which makes all these electric cars and trucks. And so we went over to chat with a fellow, and I said, well, now with the increasing electrolization of cars, you know, of 
all the big auto companies are getting into it, and Tesla, aren't you worried about your monopoly? And he sort of laughed and said no, because I'm sure even in a free marketplace like Switzerland, there's probably campaign contributions to go to the key people in the small town to keep that particular regulation. And I would just guess that uh, somehow the regulation will always be modified so that the international car companies are never going to be able to have their electric vehicles in Zermatt. All right. In the back, just gentlemen in the back. And uh, let's say the lady as well. So the two questions next to each other. Martha Thomas. Uh, the question is for either of the gentlemen. I'm wondering the extent to which you think the proportional representation system used by the EU Parliament contributes to the limited economic liberalization you're seeing and the continued decline in the economic liberalization. As you know, many studies have shown that uh, PR systems tend to reduce accountability of the individual politician to the community and reduces the accountability of the party. It also shows coalition building tends to lead to balloon-like legislation rather than slim and refined legislation. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Okay, so that's PR. And then second question. Uh, this is for Dr. Ron. Your intellectual curiosity about regulation and paper piqued my curiosity as well. Um, you mentioned that there's an inverse relationship between the size of bureaucracy and the profligation of paper. Obviously, we've seen uh, digitalization of information play a very different role. And I'm curious whether you think that the free market or uh, bureaucracy will eventually outpace one or the other given the current climate. I'll take the first, uh, second part of that, uh, your question first, and I'll get back to the lady's question. The, um, I look at uh, the digitalization as the ultimate form of paper because it enables government to monitor and send out infinite number of regulations over the Internet every day. Um, at some point, there will be a revolt against that, and that's a long topic, and I have actually thought all the way through but you're on a proportional representation. Um, something that we do know is as governmental units get too big, people lose any kind of control over them. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion in this country how your vote no longer counts. It's even worse in the EU. I mean, you have who has control over Brussels and people voting around in various countries. Um, You've developed the bureaucratic state. In this country, the House of Representatives was supposed to represent only so many people. I think we got up to about 30,000 uh, people. We were, uh, each congressman voted when it finally was fixed at 435 members of the House of Representatives. Um, <clears throat> but the, because the House was just getting too big, now the average congressman represents something like, I guess, 700,000 people, somewhere way around that number. Um, and so where you used to be able to just walk in and see your congressman because there were few enough, you represent few enough people, that was reasonably easy for most people to get an appointment to see him or her, and you had more say. As governmental units get ever bigger, 
you lose any kind of control over them, uh, which again, one reason I'm a fan of the Swiss system, because the only way to deal with that, to me, is limit the powers of the highest level of government. Now, of course, with things like trade and uh, market access, you do want them to have the ability to keep trade flowing. And there's this ongoing tension, um, but I, I think one needs to always be thinking through what happens, like with the EU, where it's no longer a, a Democrat, democratic system at all. It's totally a bureaucratic system. And um, I think the resentments will grow as the bureaucracy increases. And the lady who asked the question, I thought it was a very good question. Uh, I do not know what the answer ultimately is to this. Um, maybe the Italians have sorted it out. <laughs> is, is, is the European Union a post-democracy, Richard? As uh, Václav Klaus likes to say. Positive democracy? A post, post, after democracy. Uh, clearly it's not really a democracy. Um, if it had been set up as a more limited republic, federal republic, as of the Swiss and the, originally the U.S., I think it would have worked better. Um, the, the mandates for Brussels are too broad, allows them to get into too many things. And... Um, Again, they said, well, they needed to knock down a lot of local barriers. But I, I think ultimately by not having constraints and also by not having a Supreme Court, we've seen uh, here in the U.S. With the, we have the written constitution and the courts occasionally do come in and restrain the growth of the central government like the ruling a week ago to uh, stop of uh, the regulations the president's trying to put in on power plants. Um, the EU doesn't really have the equivalent of that, and I look at that as more damaging than even our own system, which has got a lot of flaws in it. Well, um, just to chime in very briefly on, on this one, I, I think we could argue that uh, the European Court of Justice is becoming more and more similar to, to the Supreme Court in this respect. And uh, there have been a number of recent decisions that were at odds with, with what the commission would have wanted, I mean, for good or for bad. But, uh, to, to answer the questions, um, well, actually, the first question, um, yeah, I, I mean... I tend to agree with uh, with the premise of the question. Uh, that there's been lots of discussion uh, for years now about the, the so-called uh, democratic deficit of the EU. Um, I, I think there are good arguments for that. But um, for the purpose of our discussion today, uh, no, I don't think that's very relevant. Uh, I, I don't think what we are seeing here is a, a, a problem, say, in the transmission of the <clears throat> of the will of the voters to to the, their supposed um, represented officials. Um, but uh, I, I think the issue is larger than that. I think it's 
again, as I said, part uh, the the idea of a bureaucracy trying to um, protect itself from uh, the, the the perils of the market. But on, on the other hand, I think there is a real issue with uh, uh, the intellectual climate surrounding this kind of topics. And I think the uh, <clears throat> the Great Recession made it much worse um, because when you know when you see growth, when you see that the economy is doing fine, uh, you you tend to be more uh, optimistic and you tend to value new opportunities a, a lot more than you do when things are going bad and when you tend to. You know, overestimate the challenges and, and the dangers involved with uh, more openness. So uh, uh, I think there's a, a, a real issue there, and I think that several forces, several political forces in the EU are actually taking advantage of that. Uh, so I, I think in that sense that you know the the, the voter. Uh, elected representative relationship is working even too well. I mean, again, uh, democracy is not my focus here. Is uh, I'm trying to focus on the result for economic freedom. I, I, I don't think we are seeing uh, this kind of uh, trend in economic freedom because of the democratic deficit. Okay, since lunch beckons in a few moments, um, the, the, there is... Uh all right, let's take two very quick questions right uh, right here bes behind each other. Very quick questions. No, right, Mike. My name is Ulrich Heber. I'm retired. I'm a little bit questioning whether you don't overestimate the importance of liberalization in the following sense. There's no question that it is essential for growth and it has produced growth in the past. But first of all, it is not without cost, as you said, Mr. Trovato. It has very high cost. Privatized enterprises do not provide employment anymore, or much, much less. Plus, the politicians, as you mentioned, like to draw on the, on the revenues from the, from the non-privatized enterprises. But the whole liberalization move was in the 90s, not by chance in the 90s, when the formerly socialist countries joined the EU. They wanted liberalization. They needed it. They wanted it. The economies grew quickly after that. We didn't have the euro. I wonder whether you would go so far today, and I would like to ask you that, would an additional push in, in liberalization, which we need, no question about it, but would it really generate more growth in Europe? Okay, we have a question, and then a uh, gentleman in front. Actually, two very quick ones. Uh, technical one, uh, when you look at sectors in Europe, uh, do you look at the theoretical liberalization or what's happening on the ground? I'm thinking, for example, in electricity, I've lived in Germany for a few years. Uh, basically, it's a situation of oligopolies. Uh, does not show in your, in your index. Broader question. Uh, I think it's clear that the EU institution, i.e. the irresponsible bureaucrats in Brussels, have done more for liberalization than national governments. Isn't that the paradox? And isn't the difficulty now that Brussels, because of the rise of populism, is even in more difficult position to do its job in terms of competition enforcement. Wonderful. Okay, each of you 
take a little bit of time, but please make it quick. Um, yeah, okay, very quickly. Um, I think um, yeah, I explained a bit what, what I think about this in the previous answer. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, true, that populism is a real issue for uh, liberalization in Europe right now. But uh, at the same time, uh, as I said, I'm not entirely sure that is the only problem. Uh, so I think we, as you know, free marketers, we need to try to cover all fronts of this kind of intellectual challenge. And we need to make sure not only that uh, the, the citizens at the national states are uh, in line with this kind of uh, ideas, that they realize the potential for for you know growth and for their own welfare from liberalization. I mean, uh, one of the great things, for example, about the the, the, the so-called sharing economy is that uh, it's much closer to 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 the life of people. So if you're thinking that uh, you know the the government wants to regulate Uber and perhaps you have a, a car and you have some spare time, then you, you you feel strongly about that but if if the government uh, is you know if the government is trying to just say nationalize uh, again the postal service you don't care very much in some way or another you think your mail will get delivered perhaps three weeks later than you sent it but still it will get delivered so uh i, I think the, the the real challenge from from uh, sort of marketing perspective for us is to uh, try and make it is easier for, for, for people to understand that these issues are very uh, concrete and very very urgent for their lives. They're not some abstract ideological battle. And sorry, I forgot the previous question. What was the one? Oh, let's give that to let, let's oh, give yeah, that to, okay. to Richard. Liberals, additional liberalization would have additional benefits in terms of economic growth, per capita income, and so forth, because it would allow better allocation of labor and capital throughout the EU. Um, now, of course, you have to get into very specifics on uh, some places, probably some exemptions to that. But in general, yes, you need more liberalization rather than less. And then in terms, does populism interfere with it? Most certainly, because we're seeing that happen in the U.S. in our own presidential campaign. The populism is uh, an attack on economic liberalization and will have uh, uh, negative results. Please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.